tonight is resurrecting chivalry, the key for men and women. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that this talk is for both men and women because men, you typically get the attention when it comes to chivalry. And rightfully so. You are, by your nature, the, the givers of chivalry. You are typically the bestower of chivalrous acts. But women, we have our part to play too. And we can't put it all on the guys. And so we're going to explore what that means uh, a little bit tonight. And then we're going to go into what is this key, this one key to resurrecting chivalry. And that key is for both guys and girls. So some parts of tonight are going to speak a bit more to the gentlemen in the room. Some parts of tonight's talk are going to speak more to the ladies. But it's important that we hear both pieces because we share in our common human dignity, we share in this mission, um, and, and there's an interplay in our roles of resurrecting chivalry. Right, so first, uh, what, what is chivalry? Before we even go into the key to resurrecting, what is chivalry? Right, and when we think about chivalry, we, we kind of get this image of um, the knight in shining armor, the, the, the guy on the white horse who comes and saves the damsel in distress. A lot of that comes from fairy tales. It comes from Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White. Now, guys, I'm not advocating that to resurrect chivalry, you should just go kissing sleeping women. I don't think, I don't think that's the way to go. Women, I don't think you should cohabitate with seven tiny men. I don't think that's the way to go either. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it'd be interesting, but do we necessarily have to have jousts at Rosary Circle? I'd like to give it a shot, but you know... I'm not gonna advocate for that either because I don't want administration to get mad at me. But what Disney doesn't tell us when they frame chivalry in this way, what Disney doesn't tell us is that chivalry actually has its roots in the Catholic Church. You see, in the 11th century, Western Europe was facing uh, barbarian tribes, right? There were all these barbarian tribes in Western Europe, and the Catholic Church was faced with a problem because these knights were totally rogue. They were just aggressive, they were conquering each other, attacking each other, and the Catholic Church wanted to harness that. And so what the bishops did was they introduced a code of chivalry. They encouraged these knights to not use their power to overtake the weak. They actually encouraged them to use their power to protect one another, to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ. And actually, St. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote the first, the code of chivalry. Right? The history books don't tell us that. So knighthood was being a warrior, the state of being a warrior. Chivalry was the code by which they lived. And what was this code? Well, it encouraged virtue. It encouraged knights to strive for virtue, uh, to be holy. The epitome of knighthood, the highest you could go as a knight in terms of your uh, chivalry was to die as a martyr for Jesus Christ in the church. So the ideal for a knight was actually to die a martyr's death. But they weren't just called to defend Christ in the church. They were also called to defend the weak, particularly women, children, animals, anyone who was at risk of being overpowered. And women, we kind of stiffen up at that, right? We kind of, oh, the weak, the weak, they categorize us as weak. That makes us feel not great. And is it gender ideologies, it distorted gender ideology to say that women are weaker in that sense. I think not. I think generally, physiologically speaking, women 
are physically, typically weaker than men. Now, there are some incredible female athletes that quite frankly, guys, could pummel you to the ground. So we're painting with a very broad brush stroke here, but physiologically, women are the weaker sex. It's part of our genius, our feminine genius. It's something that we can embrace. And men, part of your masculine genius is that you are typically stronger. Now, modern culture says, well, since we say that women are weaker, that means we're saying they're subpar, that they're less valuable. We never say that. The problem is modern culture says that if you're weaker, that means you're less valuable, right? We see that with euthanasia. We see that with abortion. If you are somehow weaker, that means that your value is less. But the Catholic Church actually condemns that. And the Code of Chivalry condemns that and says not only are you to protect women, but you should be willing to trade your life for hers. You should be willing to defend her honor. And so chivalry at its core is not exploiting women. The chivalrous man doesn't say, I am stronger than you and therefore I will overpower you. He says, I am stronger than you and therefore I will not overpower you. And beyond that, if anyone dares to overpower you, I will kick their butt. I don't know if that's what St. Bernard said exactly, but I'm... <laughs> okay, so we, we tend to think of chivalry as this thing of overpowering, but that's not quite true. And there's a beautiful story that emphasizes this. And in all things, it actually happened in the 1970s, 1980s, which just doesn't... Again, we don't hear that a lot. But Samuel Proctor, he was a Baptist minister, and he got into an elevator with a young woman, and he tipped his hat. And she looked at me, she said, what is that supposed to mean? And he looked her in the eye and he said, Madam, by tipping my hat, I was telling you several things. That I would not harm you in any way. That if someone came on this elevator and threatened you, I would defend you. That if you fell ill, I would tend to you. And if necessary, carry you to safety. I was telling you that even though I am a man and am physically stronger than you, I will treat you both with respect and with solicitude. But frankly, madam, it would have taken too much time to tell you all of that. So instead, I just tipped my hat. I don't think Samuel Proctor is the first guy to be accused of being toxic for doing a chivalrous act. Men, I'm sure some of you in here have tried to do wonderful things and have had women snap at you. And I'm sorry if that's the case. Because women, here's where our part, one of our parts in chivalry comes in. We're called to receive. We're called to receive that chivalry. If we want men to give it, we have to be willing to receive. And St. Paul actually talks about this in probably one of the most controversial passages of sacred scripture, Ephesians chapter five. I'm not gonna read the whole, the whole portion, but here's, here's one of the most controversial things that he says. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and of his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Some translations say, uh, be submissive to your husband. And, and when we hear that, we get this image of, a fat guy on a couch, knee deep in a bag of Doritos, being like, make me a sandwich, and that we have to be submissive. We think of that when we hear that sometimes, women, right? 
but that's not what it's actually saying. If we break down the word submissive, submission, sub means under. So St. Paul is telling us women, be under the mission of men. Be supportive of the mission of men. Accept the mission of men. Okay, well, that could be problematic if the man's mission is to dominate us. That would be a problem. But what is man's mission? Well, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. So St. Paul is essentially saying, men, be willing to die for your wives, and wives, be okay with that. (laughs) Support that. Let that happen. Accept that. Now, men, this doesn't mean you have to literally physically die. Some of you might be called to that, but usually it's sacrificing in little ways, doing these little chivalrous acts. And women, certainly we're called to sacrifice for our husbands too, but largely the, the part of our feminine genius is to accept that, to receive that. And we see this in natural law even. Women by nature are recipients. Think about the marital act. Men give, they pour forth, they give of themselves and women receive that. And from that reception, they nurture life. And men are called by chivalry to defend and protect that vessel of life that is his wife. Okay, so, so all of this points to chivalry. And, and today, oftentimes, a man's most chivalrous act or his first chivalrous act in a relationship is that he swiped right right? And that's not exactly what we're talking about here, right? Men, go ahead and shout out, what are some chivalrous acts that you can do? Open the door. door. Good one. Someone else is like, oh, he took mine. Yeah. (laughs) Pay for dinner. Yes. Yeah. Pull the chair out for her. Good. Yeah, there's a lot of things we can do, right? What is the ultimate example of chivalry? Right there. To love with an everlasting love so much that you condescend to come down to the human race that you created, that constantly turned away from you and committed horrible abominations, but you come and live among them. He taught them, he fed them, he healed them, and ultimately he gave his life for them. To be abandoned, to be betrayed, to be torn and beaten, and spit upon, to have thorns pierced into your skull, to be made to carry the instrument of your torture, and ultimately to be nailed to that cross by the hands of the people you loved, and to suffocate under the weight of your body, pouring forth the very blood which would nourish them in a new and eternal covenant. That's chivalry, because he saw something in us, in all of us, worth saving. Now, sometimes I catch myself saying, God, what, what about me? What about this was worth saving? And it's our dignity as human beings. Hey, this is a big thing for tonight. Our dignity as male and female made in the image and likeness of God. Our dignity is something that is inherent to us as children of God that cannot be taken away, which is why When someone wants to objectify someone, the first thing they have to do is take away their humanness, okay? It's no longer a human. 
It's a fetus. It's a blob of tissue. Now we can do whatever we want to it. She's no longer a woman. She's a Playboy bunny. She's a bunny. In the fashion industry, they call models hangers. You're something that you hang clothes on. You become a tool, an object. Once you take away their humanness, you don't have to treat them with human dignity anymore. So the narrative goes. So chivalry is recognizing in another their human dignity and treating them with what that dignity demands. Okay, Hugh Hefner, creator of Playboy, probably the epitome of anti-chivalry, he has this quote. He says, the notion that Playboy turns women into sex objects is ridiculous. He said, women are sex objects. Now, John Paul II, when he wrote Love and Responsibility, still Carol Waitua, he said that the opposite of love is actually not hate. He said the opposite of love is use. To use someone, to objectify someone as Hugh Hefner is doing, that's the opposite of love. Aquinas would say that to love is to will the good of the other. So a chivalrous act shows forth love, willing their good, not treating them as objects. Right? Okay, so let's press pause real quick. Up until this point, we've been creating a trail, okay? And I'm gonna show this thread real quick. So chivalry points to the dignity of the human person, okay? So to resurrect chivalry, that means somehow we have to restore recognition of that dignity. Does that make sense? So when, we, when this talk says the key to resurrecting chivalry, well, first we have to understand that chivalry is treating people according to the dignity of the human person. So to resurrect it, we have to remind the world what that dignity is. We have to restore that understanding of dignity. Does that make sense? Okay. So now I promise to share a key to resurrecting chivalry. Okay. I'm going to check my time too. I promise to share a key in resurrecting chivalry. Here's the key. Are you ready? Okay. The key to resurrecting chivalry. Modesty. Did you feel that? Like the whole room just kind of went like, like we were tracking, we were doing good. The women were like, yeah, we're talking about chivalry. This is great. And then I dropped that and it's like, oh, I didn't know we were going to hear about that. (laughs) Can I leave? (laughs) Right? Why do we feel that way? It's it's okay. Why do we feel that way though? Because typically well-intending people who have good hearts, who want to share an important message about modesty, do it in the wrong way. They approach it as a list of rules. They give you the what, but not the why. And frequently, they do it from a place that is judgmental, that is condemnatory, and they end up sometimes doing more harm than good. But modesty is a virtue. And and tonight, we're gonna talk about the why. We can get into the rules if you guys have questions about it. We can talk about the what. Um, But it's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's a great cause of joy. And so I'm not going to get up here and be like, as you can see, the x-axis is your neckline and the y-axis is your chance of going to heaven. Like, I'm not going to do that tonight, right? (laughs) Tonight is not about judgment. Tonight is not about condemnation. And I'm going to tell you guys, I am coming to you from a place of love. 
I'm coming to you from someone who, if someone had gotten up at my college and told me that my dignity was found in more than my body, that my value was not in my body, that if I wanted love, I didn't have to put my body on display. If someone told me that, my life would have been different. Because instead, I thought that my value was in my body. So what did I end up accentuating? And what did people end up valuing me for? My body. And so the reason I'm sharing this message tonight is, yes, because we need to see a resurrection of chivalry, but because there is such a beautiful thing in modesty in terms of pointing to our dignity as both male and female. Modesty is also for men, made in the image and likeness of God. And and maybe some of you out there have also been told this lie. Maybe some of you out there have at some point by someone's words or actions been told that your only value is insofar as you are a sexual object. Maybe you have wounds that you carry around from someone telling you that in the past, but modesty calls that what it is, a lie. And so tonight we're gonna face that lie head on and we're gonna talk about our beauty and our dignity is made in the image and likeness of God. So what is modesty? It is an interior disposition of the heart. I'm going to say that again because this is really important. Modesty is an interior disposition of the heart. It is a recognition of our dignity as male and female made in the image and likeness of God. And it is an external reflection of that interior reality. So modesty, what we wear, how we speak, what we do, these are all external reflections of our interior dignity, which cannot be taken away from us. John Paul II, in that same book I talked about earlier, Love and Responsibility, he says this. He says, dress is immodest when it accentuates the sexual values and displaces the value of the person the person becomes an object of enjoyment and not an object of love. So dress is immodest when it accentuates what he calls a sexual value, when it accentuates the sexual value and thus displaces your human value. So the real question about modesty is what are we accentuating? Right? What, What are we inviting people to. When, when we get dressed in the morning, what we wear, does it invite people to know us as a human, to know our human value, our dignity is made in the image and likeness of God, or does it invite people to know something else? And everywhere we go, people invite us to know something, right? I don't know if you've ever been like at Walmart and there's a miserable looking employee who just looks like he hates his life and he's got that button on that says, ask me about employment opportunities. And you're like, I don't think I will. Like, I, you know, we, we have signs that we put on us that say, ask me about X, Y, Z. So the way that we're dressing, both men and women, is it inviting people, ask me about my intellect. Ask me about my winning personality. Ask me about my dignity as made in the image and likeness of God. Or is it inviting them to ask about something else? Right? We have to ask ourselves what we really want. And if what we really want is love, true love, <laughs> then we need to be dressing in a way that, that asks for that, that invites that. Again, this is for men and women. So the remainder of our time today is actually going to go into 
uh, what I call modesty myths. Things that we might hear people say and things that we might even think ourselves when it comes to modesty. So now you wonder what the great mysterious flip chart is for. Um, okay, modesty myth number one. Modesty means being ashamed of my body. Shame is a complex term. You know, Brene Brown, she's, she's very popular for talking about what's called negative shame, imminent shame. It's the sense that I'm not worthy. And certainly that shame does exist, and that is negative shame. But when John Paul II talks about shame in relation to the body, he's actually talking about a different kind of shame. He's talking about positive shame. So we have negative shame, and we have positive shame. And we have to understand the difference in order to really understand what modesty is all about. So modesty, or JP2 JP calls modesty an eagerness to avoid the shameless. An eagerness to avoid the shameless. What the heck does that mean? He means we should feel a certain type of shame. Now, that doesn't mean that the body is shameful or that our sexuality is shameful. What he talks about shame is when something that is private becomes public, and something that could be objectified is put on display. And so shame, in the sense he's talking, is actually a protective measure of protecting your body from being objectified. So when we talk about shame, we're not saying cover your body because it's bad. We're saying cover your body because it's good. And if you uncover it, someone could use it wrong. And we hear in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, you know, in the, before the fall, Adam and Eve were, were naked without shame. And then, you know, the apple happens. And so we almost think it's like body good, apple, body bad. And that's not the case. Their body was good before and after the apple. It wasn't that their bodies changed. It was that their hearts changed. Because at the fall, sin entered the picture. The, the potential for lust entered the picture. And so when Adam and Eve suddenly realized they were naked and felt this shame, it wasn't, oh my gosh, my body is so horrible. It was, oh, you, you could objectify me. I don't want that. And so it's, it's a response to that, right? So JP2 says, shame reveals the inner character of the person who knows that he or she should not be an object of use. Interiorly, we know that we're not supposed to be an object of use. And shame is our response to that. Women, if you're showering and a guy comes into the room, what do you immediately cover, Right? the thing which is most valuable and most open to be objectified. Men, let's say you're married, you have a family of your own, you're home and a gunman comes into your house. What do you cover? Your children. Why? Because they're bad? Because you're ashamed of them? No, because in that moment, they are open to being objectified, to being harmed. And so you instinctively cover that which is most valuable and which is open and susceptible to being put in harm's way. Now, I think it's important also to consider here. Man, love it. The suspense, it's building. What's important to consider? Um, to consider the Latin use in Genesis, okay? So in the beginning, man and woman were naked without shame. In Latin, that's nudus et non erubescebant. What does erubescebant mean? It means reddening. They were naked without reddening. Literally, they were naked without blushing. Okay? And this blushing is that signal, it's an exterior signal of, 
something could be objectified here. So it's, it's a signal that the virtue of modesty is at play. In Jeremiah, the prophet laments in 6.15, he says that he laments the women who did not know how to blush. They didn't know how to be modest. Pope Pius XII said something similar. He said, women would surely blush if they could only guess the impressions they make and the feelings they evoke in those who see them. So blush is, is an external sign of the presence of the virtue of modesty. But culture tells us that we shouldn't have that virtue. So they tell women to be empowered, to go around half naked, to not wear anything, and, and don't feel shame, women. Go ahead and put your body out there. That's empowering. Put it out there. Let the world see it. That's your power. Oh, but by the way, before you go out there half naked, put on this fake blush because people actually think that's attractive, right? And so we have these women, we have Shakira and Beyonce and all these women who go out at the halftime at Super Bowl and put their bodies out there on display half naked because they're told to not have shame. But before they go out there, what do they do? They paint artificial shame on their face. So culture, even though it tells us to not have shame, they know deep down that it's attractive, that that virtue of modesty is attractive. And ladies, fill in the blank for me. The slogan of one of the makeup companies that makes blush, fill in this blank. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe she's born with this interior disposition of the heart. Maybe she's born with this knowledge that she shouldn't be objectified. Or maybe it's just Maybelline, right? So when we talk about shame, we have to understand that it's not being ashamed of our body in the sense that it's bad. It's, it's, it's about the knowledge that it's good and wanting to protect it. Okay, modesty myth number two. It's the guy's fault if he's tempted by how I dress. It's a big one, guys, all right? We share responsibility here, okay? It's, JP2 says that women cannot understand modesty unless we understand male psychology. And I want to be really careful with how I share this because men are not animals without control, okay? Men have self-control. They do. The men in this room are wonderful and they have self-control, but we have to understand the ways that our brains are wired. Men's emotion or men's sensuality is scientifically aroused by visual stimulation and imagination, Women's sensuality is aroused by emotion. Women, how many of you have ever been sitting there looking at a text message with your friends going like, he only used three exclamation points. I don't know what he meant by that. Guys don't do that. Guys aren't like that. We are, our sensuality is, is oriented in different ways, right? Men, if you got up here and read a poem, every woman in the room would be falling at your feet because we love that emotion. That's where, we, that's where you get us. The men, are, are, their sensuality is directed towards visual stimulation. And scientifically speaking, their eyes are actually directed towards linear angles. So men's eyes automatically, the way that their body is made, their eyes map to linear angles, and then their imagination fills in the gap. So when we wear a low-cut shirt with a sharp V-neck, their eye goes to that angle naturally and then fills in the blank. And it's not because they're animals without self-control. This is the way that we're built, okay? So we've been talking about this idea of chivalry, that men have a duty to protect women. Women, we have a duty to protect men. Okay, so when we talk about 
when we, we can't expect a man to defend our dignity if we don't tell him that we have something to defend, okay? So when we talk about if the, it's the guy's fault, well, we have to avoid being scrupulous here. JP2 says that if you're dressed modestly as a woman and a guy still lusts after you, your hands are clean, right? Because quite frankly, some people could be dressed in a potato sack and someone could still lust after them. So it's, we, we don't bear all the responsibility, but... But here's what JP2 says. If a woman is dressed immodestly with the intent of provoking, arousing a young man, and that man then lusts after her, they both have responsibility, that God will hold them both accountable, okay? And so when we think about the gravity of what if a man lusts after a woman and, and, and allows himself to feel that lust, let's say it goes into mortal sin territory, right? We have to consider what does that mean for our brother? And do we want to help bear that responsibility, right? Now, men, culture today, it's very hard to not be in the presence of an immodest woman. They're everywhere, right? Immodestly dressed women are, if you go to the mall, it's like, how, what am I supposed to do, right? Well, we have to understand just because you're in the presence of, a, of an immodestly dressed woman does not mean that you are automatically lusting after her, right? It's when you allow yourself to be in that, that's where you get into dangerous territory. So you're not sinning by necessarily being in that presence, okay? Because there's not much you can do at some point to help it. It's when you allow yourself to lust after her that Jesus says you commit adultery in your heart. So that's where we have to be careful. But this is where modesty really applies to men is this idea of custodia oculorum, custody of the eyes. The ability to have control over our eyes, and this is for women too, I have to practice custody of the eyes too. If we see someone and we can tell this is gonna be a, you know, an opportunity of temptation, I'm going to look away. I'm going to look at her face instead of at her body, which she's putting on display. If you're ever watching, like reading an article and that little video pops up in the lower corner and it's something inappropriate, it's like, I'm going to redirect my site or close out of that webpage or whatever it is. So custody of the eyes is really important in this sense. Okay, so, so again, it's, 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 it can be a shared responsibility here for men and women. And so we have to take that seriously for what it is. Modesty myth number three. Modesty only matters at mass. Certainly at mass, it is a heightened level, right? The mass is where we find the source and summit of our faith. And so we should dress more reverently there. And the friars have talked about that. So I'm not going to go too much into that. But we know the scripture says our body is a temple. And our body doesn't cease to be a temple the minute we leave Christ the King Chapel, right? And so we have to be aware. Now, JP2 says that the situation will affect what is modest or immodest. So should you be wearing your Sunday best at the gym? No, I mean, you can, but that might be hard, right? But we do have to be aware and not use the gym, for instance, as just a free-for-all, right? Now, I, as a practice for myself, because I know myself, I don't go work out in public gyms because, guys, sometimes you get real excited and you just rip off your shirt and you're like really, you know, into it. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to be in the path of that. So, you know, just because we're not supposed to be wearing, you know, a floor length dress at the gym, does that mean we put on Spanx and a sports bra and call it a day, right? We still have to protect each other. Now, I'm not going to make a lot of blanket statements tonight, but this is what I'm going to make. When we talk about bikinis, I'm going to make this blanket statement. It is a really, 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 
really bad idea to wear a bikini, okay? And I'm telling you this as someone who had to cry and weep as I put my bikinis in a dumpster, okay? Like, I've been there. Actually, I converted them into masks when COVID was first a thing. Um, it it didn't work out. Um, Why is a bikini a bad idea? Well, we have to, okay, what does a bikini show? Everything, right? Okay, but really, what's a bikini show? When we look at it scientifically, first thing a bikini shows is the length of a woman's abdomen. Now, men, you probably don't think about this when you see this, but here's what's subconsciously happening, okay? A woman's abdomen is naturally longer than a man's. Why? Because there needs to be room for something. What? a baby, his baby, right? It's like, you see a guy and it's like, there's room here for a baby, your baby, right? A bikini also shows the width of your hips. Why? Because the width of a hip is subconsciously attractive to a man because it shows a woman's ability to bring forth what? A baby, his baby, okay? A bikini also shows off a woman's breasts which shows her ability to nourish what? A baby, his baby. And so when we wear a bikini, women, this may not be what we're trying to say, but when we wear a bikini, we're essentially going up to a guy and being like, I am ready to have your child, okay? There are better ways to to communicate that, like getting married or enrolling at Franciscan University, you know? Okay, so... So it's, it's not using your location as an excuse to just have a free-for-all. Okay, modesty myth number four. If I dress modestly, I won't get a guy. You're right. You won't get a guy. You will get a man. Okay? Yes, snaps for that. Do we understand the difference, lady? If we want a guy to treat us with chivalry, we want a guy who's going to, to, to know there's something worth defending because we've told him so. Okay, if we want to be loved for more than our body, then we need to invite men to love us for more than our body. And when we do that, not only are we respecting ourselves, we're respecting the men. We're saying not only I'm worthy of a truer love, but we're saying you're worthy of a truer love. Okay, so that's, I'm just gonna be quick on that one because that's pretty self-explanatory. All right, nope, skipping one. Okay, it's one of my favorites. Modesty myth number five. Whoa! Modesty equals frumpiness. I fell into this one hardcore when I first started embracing modesty. I, I like, I went into this like, almost like the stages of grieving. So like I was mad at my wardrobe. I was just mad at all my clothes. And then I just had this uncontrollable urge to purchase tube socks. Um, and then like, I'd be at the thrift store and I'd see like a patchwork skirt with 40 shades of denim. It's like, I must have it. You know, it's like, but, but modesty is a virtue. Frumpiness is not a virtue. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to go so far as to say like frumpiness is a vice, but modesty is a virtue. Frumpiness is not a virtue. Okay. So we're called to take care of ourselves, right? I knew that I had a problem when people would be like, you look so good today. What'd you do with your hair? It's like, oh, I washed it. But I thought that if I was in, in any way attractive, that I was sinning, that if I was in any way attracting men, 
just by whatever, then, then I was sinning. And that's not true, right? St. Francis talks about the need to take care of ourselves, the need to exercise. Guys, it's okay to want muscles, okay? It's totally okay to go to the gym and work on your muscles. We can tell you have them, okay, through your clothes. We can tell. You don't need to show us like that explicitly, okay? So, so it's okay to take care of your body. There's something to be said about beauty. It's a gift from God. And when we allow that to naturally shine forth, again, not falling into vanity too, that's another end of the spectrum, but it's okay to let that shine forth. All right, modesty myth number six. Jesus doesn't care if I dress modestly because he knows what's on the inside. Yes, he does know what's on the inside, but do you? Because if, if, if we knew what was on the inside, then we would probably dress in a way that reflected that. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 through 20 says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How do we know that God cares? How do we know that God cares how we dress? Well, after the fall, when Adam and Eve realized they were naked, they, if you remember, sewed together cloths of fig leaves. And those did not provide a lot of coverage, okay? They, they just didn't. And when God was walking in the garden and saw them, what did he do? He fashioned clothing for them out of animal skins. Was it because God came in and was like, oh, your body is horrible. Let's put more coverage on this. No, he came in and said, okay, sin has now entered the world. You've tried to cover it, but honey, that ain't gonna do it because the level of lust and objectification in the world now, that's not gonna cut it. I'm going to take care of you because I know how hard the world is now. And so he made them more covering clothes. So ladies, if we are going to accuse of man of being toxic because he encourages us to cover up, then we better be ready to accuse God of the same thing because he was the first fashion police, right? Our Lady of Fatima, when she spoke to St. Jacinta, she said um, that certain fashions would be introduced that offended God. Why would God be offended? Why would he be offended? Well, because again, as we heard in 1 Corinthians we were bought with a price. God, God gave us our bodies and he restored our bodies to this holiness at the price of his blood. And so when we go around not respecting our bodies and our dress, we're basically telling God, hey, thanks, but no thanks. And, and I'm not saying that's what we're trying to do, right? We, all, we always have to assume good intentions, right? All the years I was dressing immodestly, that was not what I was trying to say. I wasn't even thinking about that, right? But we have to be aware of what's going on interiorly if, if maybe we're not even aware of it on a subconscious level. Okay, so, so he has given us this gift and it deserves to be protected. All right, last modesty myth here. All right, this is great. Okay, modesty myth number seven. Modesty is just about clothing. Certainly a lot of it is, that's why I've talked about it this long. <laughs> But modesty is not just clothes. Modesty is the music we listen to, the shows we watch, the company we keep, the jokes we make, right? So we have to think about in terms of all of this, is it pointing to the dignity of male and female as made in the image and likeness of God, okay? What we say, 
right? In the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth is what defiles it. In Ephesians 5, we're warned against lewd jokes. And that was a hard habit for me to break. That was a really hard habit for me to break after college. And finally, a friend sent me something in the mail and I unwrapped it and it was jokes for Catholics. And there was a little note inside that said, thought you might need this. And I was like, oh, hint taken. Okay, great. Right? Because it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles. And so if we're, we could be dressed perfectly modestly, but if what we're saying is not modest, that's, that's still reflecting. That means there's still something in there interiorly that needs to be restored. Okay? What we do drunkenness, right? Who are we hanging out with? What kinds of things are we doing? Okay. Um, Think about the shows and the movies you watch. What kind of lifestyles are the characters living? And are those lifestyles um, held up on a pedestal, right? Are those lifestyles celebrated? How many sex scenes are in those shows and movies? We have to be protective of ourselves and others, right? We have to protect the actors and say, man, you know, I'm not going to watch this because this is beneath their dignity as made male and female in the image and likeness of God. Think of the music you listen to. Think of that song when it comes on the radio. I'm not talking like Bethel music. So I'm talking like the song that comes on the radio and you start flossing or dabbing or whatever the heck, I don't know. Like whatever you do, what are the lyrics of that song? Just go run through them in your head real quick. What are those lyrics saying? What are they saying about the dignity of male and females made in the image and likeness of God? Last year, I went on a tirade against Kroger because they started a new campaign to talk about how low their prices were. Do you guys remember this? And the song, the theme song for the campaign was Flow Ride is Low. You know, the Apple Bottom Jeans song, right? The song is about pole dancing. How many of us know that? It's not unless you Google the lyrics, but somewhere in a boardroom, a bunch of people were sitting around the table and the president of Kroger was like, all right, we need to help people know to buy Captain Crunch here rather than at Aldi or Walmart. What do we do? And someone kicked back and said, oh, how about we use the the song about pool dancing? It was like, perfect, let's do it, right? We have to be, and and it's one of the most requested songs at dances. Nothing at a wedding reception says congratulations on your sacramental union, like a song about stripping. And how many of us, when it comes on, rush out to the dance floor? Guys and girls, Alvin and the Chipmunks did a cover of Low, right? This, don't get me started on this, okay? So we have to be aware of modesty in terms not only of dress, but in terms of the media we're consuming, the actions we're doing, right? And so it's always about, does this point to the dignity of the human person? Okay, so I want to leave time for questions. I want to close tonight with this verse from Galatians, chapter 5, verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. Men, serve and honor the dignity of women through chivalrous acts, through modesty. Women, serve and honor the dignity of men by receiving that chivalry and through modesty, right? Because right now we're in kind of a vicious cycle. Women dress immodestly because they think that's the only way they'll get attention. 
Men give attention to that, thus telling women, yeah, if you want my attention, you got to dress immodestly. So then women continue to dress immodestly. So then men continue to pay attention. We got to break the cycle at some point. And I think our hilltop here at Steubenville is a great place to start this restoration. I think this is a great place that we, brothers and sisters in Christ, can stand up together and say, we can exteriorly reflect our interior dignity. Because how did Jesus Christ serve us? With his flesh. And he continues to serve us with that flesh every single day in the Eucharist. And so if anything tonight has come out that you're just like, oh my gosh, I need, I, I don't know what to think of this. I need to, you know, it's, it's okay Okay, it's, it's, it's good that we have these conversations. And next week, Father Jonathan is going to give a talk on sacramental healing because Jesus offers us the gift of returning to him in reconciliation.